every time I visit my family lately, I like learn something about myself <laughs> that I like didn't know was there and it just keeps happening. So, you know, I don't know that it's ever gonna end, but you know, the role that I play as like the daughter or the niece or the granddaughter or the in-law cousin or whatever it is brings out these different things in me. And uh, it like makes me question these days like the role that I'm playing and like what I automatically am doing without thinking about it. And then like, do I want to even do those things? Like, like as an aside, like do I even want to be in this role or do these things? And foraging, foraging, that's not right, forging, for, foraging is good too, but forging new paths ahead is kind of difficult because you have all of this history of these family relationships and these family relationships come with so much baggage. We don't always teach or learn the things that we want to with family because we bring so much into these relationships, assumptions, uh, inventions, perspective into our interactions that they can be somewhat complex. And my grandmother, whose funeral I was just at um, this last weekend, she was, she was a pretty forward-thinking woman for her day. She was a career woman. She was savvy with money. Uh, she was smart. She was not afraid to, like, tell you what she thought about something. She sort of ruled with a something iron fist. I don't know. She ruled, right? And um, so I share a name with her. She went by Joanne, which is my middle name. And so I guess one day we'll know if it's actually the naming of someone or just the family connection that makes people with the same name have some resemblance. Um, but the original Joanne did something with her kids that I would never do. And uh, she was a teacher, not a, not a preacher. So I'm going to like chalk it up to ignorance or something um, or not knowing better. But here's the story of how I found out. I was there the day after the funeral, and the three sisters were going through a bunch of things in her attic. And they were pulling things out and being like, oh, remember this and that. And there's this bowl that my Aunt Jana broke when she was like 10, twirling her baton. And my grandmother had saved the broken piece of the bowl because it was like a very fancy bowl. And they called it the guilt bowl <laughs> and I swear to this day my aunt still feels guilty about it she just look at it and go oh and she would just be so sad but they would bring all these things out and suddenly they came across this thing and they're like oh it's the manger scene and I'm like a little confused because my grandmother collected manger scenes but years ago they had sort of been divvied out to all the different grandkids and kids of the different ones um, and so I'm surprised that there's even another one and I'm like what what manger scene and they're like oh the one we had as kids and it was kind of it's kind of like um, not it's not it's breakable but not as breakable I guess it's a little more durable and uh, immediately that same aunt the guilt bowl aunt was like, can you believe 
that mother made us earn the hay so that Jesus could be born. And I was like, what? Earn, what? What does that mean? Earn the hay? How did you earn the hay? And they're like, well, like, by obeying, by, like, doing what we were told, by doing good deeds, uh, like, for others, we would earn pieces of hay, and then, when there was enough hay, Jesus could be born. Yeah, I know, my exact internal reaction. And at this point, I'm, like, totally forgetting my role as, like, the niece, daughter, who's, like, kind of like just supposed to be observing the situation and I'm like okay what should I say here and then I'm like finally I'm like so what do you think that taught you about God coming to be present with us <laughs> and my aunt said well we had to earn it <laughs> and she's just like I mean my aunt <laughs> She's like a character, but she's like equal parts guilt and shock. And like, there's like an underlying like fear that she's never going to live up to like my grandmother's expectations of her there. There's a lot of things going on in those statements. I feel like a lot of things, a lot of our experiences are sort of like how we see the world is rooted in our family of origin, the things that we were taught. And I suspect that my aunt still sees herself mirrored in her mother, my grandmother, who for good probably in some cases and for bad probably in some cases just expected a lot. She was a teacher. There was a way to do things. It was sort of a blessing and a curse. And uh, our story as a, as a people of God, one of the beginning stories was this um, this time when three strangers came out of the wilderness to our four parents, Sarai and Abram. And in this visit, these three strangers, who are pictured later in art as a Trinitarian three, um, they hear from these strangers, one year from now, uh, we'll come back and you will have a son who will be the beginning of this great family. And after this experience, um, Abram's name changes to Abraham, which means the father of many, and Sarai's name changes to Sarah, which is the mother of many. And in the 15th century, a Russian painter named Andrei Rublev painted what is now known as the hospitality of Abraham, which is uh, the most famous of all Russian icons, his most famous work, and it is regarded as um, one of the highest achievements of all Russian art. I have a very poor coloring sheet representation on the back of your handout if you want to kind of remember or imagine what it's like. In this icon, there are three, the three strangers pictured with wings. They sit around this table with a bowl. Abram and Sarai are not in the picture, but you can sort of see their house in the background and the, uh, an oak of Mamre, which is referenced in the story, and then a mountain, which is to be Mount Moriah. Um, and their heads, they sort of tilt toward one another 
almost as if giving over their power one to another in a circle. Compositionally, their bodies sort of form a circle. And there is this somewhat suspicious box right under the table. In his book, The Divine Divine Dance, Richard Rohr tracks the history of this suspicious box that there are those who believe that the painting, the icon, used to have a mirror affixed to this location. Rohr explores it theologically. What, is, what would it mean for theologians and historians who are now so confident that Rublev was not trying to make a representation of three strangers, but actually were trying, was trying to capture a theological statement about the Trinity. What does it mean, Rohr wonders, that a mirror is placed to see one's reflection on the table of the triune life of God? Certainly, systematic theology might be impacted by the answer to this question, by this one crazy artist's reflection of what the Trinity could be. And if so, it would be a reflection of a reflection. The art, a mirror to a deeper reality that ultimately includes the mirroring of us and our own image in the life of God so that each person who looks at it would be there as well. There are three, but could there be more? It's like the season finale of the rings of power this week if you know what i mean how will more be included you wonder so it was in the car this week of course where all important conversations happen Uh, i had gotten back from the store the funeral and story was asking what children were at the funeral of course the most important question and she was trying to place the kids, I was saying, like, who, how they were related to her. And then she's just like, says, if there, was, if there was a picture of how everyone was related, it would be, like, so huge. And me and Caleb, the ever-helpful parents, jump in to say, yes, like, that's called a family tree. And your grandpa put together a family tree, and we have, like, a whole notebook of family trees. Um, of, you know, of all the things that he's discovered. But, you know, undeterred by our small-mindedness, story goes on without skipping a beat. Yes, it would be so big. It would be as big as the whole earth because everyone would be on there. Everyone who's living now, everyone who did live, everyone who will live, and at the very top will be Adam and Eve. And, and, and here was the important part for her, of course. And if it was big enough to track everyone, I would be related to Jovi because everyone in the world is really related. As always, surprised to find out I don't exactly understand the scope of what my kids are talking about. I began to reflect, yeah, what does it look like when you consider the family tree of humanity? What does it mean that we're all a part of the same family, showing up on earth as siblings of a common father who are also somehow 
perhaps simultaneously included in the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as I thought about it, I imagined the whole world at a family reunion. Now, this funeral, like, I almost had to say to my mom at one point, Mom, this is not a family reunion, because she was getting upset over this cousin coming or not or whoever, and I'm just like, this is not a family reunion. People will come if they want to come. Um, and, and also, if it was, it's like the worst family reunion ever, a plan like less than a week in advance. Um, but just, just having been there with so much of my family together, like I cannot even imagine the drama of the whole earth like all the people coming together in a family reunion. There was so much drama at this family gathering of, of mine. And I had so many roles to play. Like I showed up first as like the cousin and then like the sister and then like the sister-in-law and then the girlfriend's sister and then the niece and then the niece-in-law and then the, you know, like, but finally, eventually, the granddaughter, which was kind of the point of me being there. And when I arrived, I arrived to so many people playing different roles. It was almost like you could make a sitcom out of this. There was like the obnoxious boyfriend, the no-nonsense aunt, you know, the three daughters, one of whom happened to be my mother, but in this context, she was one of the three daughters. Um, I arrived to a new uncle. It was only the second time I had met him. The first time was at his wedding four years ago. And, you know, it, he reminds me of my first uncle um, who passed away about 10 years ago. And I'm like, this is so, like, he's unfairly taking my uncle's place. And it's like, no, he's not. Like, it's unfair for me to even think that about him. But it's regardless how I'm feeling. You know, families are just so complicated. And they're hard. And last weekend was hard, and there was a lot of drama, some to be expected, you know, when you have someone like Joanne, you know, calling the shots, and then she's gone, and there's like a vacuum of power. Um, but some of it is completely unexpected, right? Like, I housed myself willingly with <laughs> uh, vomiting cousins and drunk boyfriends and the loud snoring they produced when they exiled themselves to the couch outside my bedroom. Um, it was not closure. It was disclosure. It revealed, like a mirror, so many things that I don't normally see about myself when I'm in my normal life. To be mirrored by God and to be a part of God's family can feel very disorienting. To be a part of the church universal can be disorienting because we have cousins in recovery and aunts vacuuming at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we're all in the same family somehow. We're all supposed to get along. In the body of Christ, we have ears and arms and elbows, but we also have kidneys and toes and armpits and other parts of our body that we clothe with greater honor, fill in the blank. And what is more is that knowing that we are a part of a family means that we also have a role. 
And that role, while if seen on a sheet, might seem like orienting, like this is who, this is the part I play. But it's also disorienting. It's disorienting because we're bringing so much to it. And maybe we're playing a role that we're not meant to play. Maybe we're showing up in a way that we're not meant to show up. Maybe we're just filling the expectations of someone else who's looking for help or someone to fill a role for them. Maybe we're setting the rules and taking the lead because we don't want to experience the uncertainty of others' choices. Or maybe we're new to this relationship and to what it actually means, or we're reassessing it after decades of what it actually means to be a part of this family now. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how Adam and Eve were parts of each other, and how a few weeks later, we sort of mirror that relationship between the body of Christ, it, within the body of Christ, parts of each other, parts of the body of Christ. But today, the idea I want to throw at you to take it even a step further is that we are not just a part of creation, and we are not just a part of each other in the body of Christ as the ha-adam, the humanity, but that we are also a part of God. That when we couldn't quite grasp what it meant to be made in God's image, God, to make the point ever so clear, came in our image. We looked like God, but that wasn't enough, so God put on flesh and came in our image. And the good news is, is God comes when there's hay, and God comes when there's no hay. God comes when there's an abundance of hay, and God comes when there's no hay. It doesn't matter. The hay doesn't matter. Included, imaged, adopted, married. So many metaphors in this earlier reading about how, what it means to be adopted into this family of God. Not a second class, which sometimes we think of when we think of married or I don't know, you know, we bring all of our own interpretations into this, but actually from the beginning of who we are, the psalmist who talks about being knit together in our mother's womb, that God actually knew us and loved us before we even knew how to recognize our mother's face. And the scriptures that we, talk, that we read today that talk about the marriage of Christ and the church, the oneness of God and God's people. And if nothing else, the writer of Ephesians makes it plain that the husband and wife, the ha-adam, the two parts created for community and relationship, well, in hindsight, that's actually God creating space for us within the life of God. It's a mystery, Paul says, that the husband and the wife are one flesh, but I'm telling you, it's about Christ and the church. This epiphany rewrites the beginning of our story as one not of original sin, but of original goodness, that God created us and said, 
good. And the psalmist suggests we are so known and loved that maybe we, just in being conceived, are a part of something God wants, desires, and loves, and is trying to do in this world. And it doesn't give us closure. It gives us disclosure. It reveals like a mirror so many things that I may not normally see about myself. Goodness, worthiness, belovedness, strength, beauty, complexity, to be mirrored by God and to be a part of the life and the Trinity of the Trinity can be disorienting because we don't typically see ourselves in a positive light. We are looking for the flaw or we are looking for the place we need to go and do and be in order to be loved. Maybe we feel like we need to do good and to obey and to do good deeds for God so that God will be present with us. Maybe our mothers made us earn the hay for Jesus' bed before Christmas could come. But the thing about earning love, the thing about working for it, is that we'll never know if we are loved for who we are or for what we do. In the body of Christ, we don't have to play the role that we think we are given. And we don't have to live up to the standard we were taught. And we don't have to do anything morally, I say, as people squirm in their chairs. <laughs> because here's the thing, we were not created for sin or for pain, or for hardship, or for suffering. We are created for God, in God's image, as a part of God's very being, and so our very lives are a center. What's the, what's the term for, like, how the universe is expanding from every point? Omnicentricity. I knew there was a word for it. I just didn't know what it was. It's like that. It's like the universe has all of these points and it's expanding. At any point you go in the universe, it's like expanding from that point. That's the best we can measure it. It's the best we can explain it. It's expanding from all of these different points at the same time and it's very interconnected, right? Like there's so much interconnection. It's like until we see that, until we see that our lives like in ourselves, like is a center, is a point of God's action, of God's work, then we cannot be who we were created to be because we'll be feeding off these expectations of others or, you know, we, we just, we have to have God's presence as a centerpiece of our identity. Just as the universe expands from every point, God's work is also centered in you. And only from that point can the connections grow. Each of us ultimately is ground zero for God. 
ground zero for the work, included each of us into the divine life. And from that place, and only from that place, can we find ourselves within the body. We are, each and every one of us, something God is doing in this city, country, continent, planet, solar system, and universe. Let's pray. God, thank you for <coughs> all of the ways that you have revealed through your word that you are coming after us, that you love us, that you want us, that you, before we ever do anything to earn it, that you have come and that we are held in all of our mistakes, in all of our fears, in all of our expectations of ourselves, all of everyone else's expectations of ourselves that are maybe helpful and unhelpful equal in equal parts at different times. Lord, help us to have compassion for the one that you made us to be, that you want us to be. May we find our lives in you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen.